Want to create memories with your family? Do you have a desire to bring your family closer together? Are vacations lacking that special something you want your family to have? Tropic of Candy Corn is your resource for smarter, sweeter family travel. Learn from other families, be inspired, and encourage others with your weekend getaway and vacation ideas. Tropic of Candy Corn. This isn't a travel sales site. It's something new and different. A community to help bring your family closer through travel. Join us today at www.tropicofcandycorn.com. It's free and it's fun. Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Samuel Brown, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Thanks. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good. No problem. We are talking today with Samuel Brown, author of In Heaven As It Is on Earth, Joseph Smith in the Early Mormon Conquest of Death. And I have to say, uh, Brother Brown, this was just an intriguing book. It was... Uh, it was morbid in some ways, which which made me kind of chuckle because I I kind of like scary movies. I like uh, I like thinking about things in regards to to death in some ways. I think it's always a fascinating subject. I've done a lot of research into near death experiences and those kinds of things. But before we get into the book, wondered if you just might uh, introduce yourself and give the, the listeners a feel for who you are. I'm Sam. I'm middle aged. I'm uh, mostly I'm a medical researcher. Uh, study life-threatening infection and uh, how the body responds to it and, and recently have been working, uh, founded a center called the Center for Humanizing Critical Care at an amount that's trying to apply rigorous quantitative techniques and uh, common sense human compassion to try to understand how to make the experience of life-threatening illness as healthful as it possibly can be. Uh, it, I'm also a uh, at Medical Ethics and Humanities at the University of Utah, in addition to my, my uh, main affiliation. And in that context, do a lot of thinking and writing and talking and teaching about how human beings respond to uh, illness, the prospect of death, what it, what it means to be embodied. And as a practicing Latter-day Saint since the age of 18, I raised Mormon but was atheist from about age eight to about age eighteen, uh, but as a as a practicing Latter Day Saint for these last twenty five thirty years, um, actually I'm not sure how long it's been. It probably has been twenty five years. Uh, I'm also interested in how uh, things work for us in our tradition, and so have done a fair bit of work in Mormon history. Uh, I do that as a Sunday devotion. I've got a lot uh, going on in my life, and so I have to be very careful that one part of my life doesn't overrun uh, the others. So I, I do my Mormon history work for an hour and a half or two hours on Sunday mornings and have found that that's allowed me to participate in the 
community of Mormon historians, which is a delightful group of women and men with great ideas and good hearts. Awesome. Glad to hear that. And I want to kind of jump into the book, the book In Heaven As It Is on Earth, Joseph Smith and the Early Mormon Conquest of Death. Again, uh, I I found the book fascinating, but this subject, I think you covered this at such length, just death and kind of what was going on in Joseph's milieu. and, And maybe just tell us for a moment why this subject, I know you just hit on a little bit that it's kind of in your your career field, but uh, what prompted this uh, as a subject to be covered in an entire book? It's a great question. My wife is a religious historian and uh, is one of the great intellectual and spiritual influences in my life. And some years ago now, maybe a decade ago, she and I were, we were living in Boston at the time and we're on vacation in Camden, Maine, and there was a beautiful colonial cemetery there. And uh, we were just walking around town and ended up there. And as we walked through the cemetery with our toddler at that time, jumping and running and laughing as we made our way through these markers of lives that had passed from mortality, she got me thinking more carefully about what it meant to be post-mortal in early Mormonism and specifically about what early Mormons understood about angels and the theology of angels in early Mormonism is really quite distinct from the traditional Christian theologies of angels. Specifically, Joseph Smith taught that angels were people, uh, whereas in other Catholic and Protestant traditions, angels are an entirely different type of being, as different from humans as humans are different from horses. And it and it got me thinking, what what does it mean that Joseph Smith and the early Mormons had such a distinctive view of angels? Does it does it hold some interpretive key for some of the other uh, distinctive elements of early Mormonism? And that tied religion, I think, even more immediately to the experiences I was having as a physician in training, because part of what you do as a physician in training, if you're a moral one, is you uh, you spend time tender and attentive time in the presence of the dying. It's not just about doing whatever procedure you've been trained to do. It's about being present with somebody as they face the end of life and uh, dying and death. So I, it, it was this way for me to combine my own religious experience, these fascinating ideas about where theology comes from and what it means and what how early Mormonism compared and contrasted with the uh, Protestant Christians around them with my professional experience and my desire to uh, maintain vigorous associations with my faith tradition, which is the Latter-day Saint tradition. You uh, you start off in the beginning of the book using this term "holy dying," and uh, and wondered if you might describe to uh, to us what you meant by the, the use of that word. Sure, but before what historians call the dying of death, which happened from about 1880 to about 1920, before this dying of death, people had a very different understanding of what dying was about, what it entailed, what its significance was culturally and religiously, what its implication was for your afterlife and for the present community. It's all very different, and historians have used a few different phrases to try to describe this idea of a death that was religiously important and socially and culturally vital. And good death or beautiful death are two common terms that are used to describe it. Uh, Holy dying is a term that was used by many of the people 
actually involved in the culture at the time and made clear just how religious this fundamentally was. The more neutral terms that have been used by many historians of good or beautiful, I think, failed to appreciate just how intensely religious this process of dying was. So within holy dying or, or the holy deathbed, at a holy deathbed, people made peace with the fact that they were leaving, which was an important thing to do. They bestowed wisdom on uh, friends and family and even neighbors and sometimes strangers, and they attempted to persuade those assembled at their deathbed of Christ's strength and beauty and meaning. And that holy dying meant that death was something other than just the tragedy that it always is. We get this misconception that somehow back, back in olden times, death didn't seem so tragic. And I think it's because we're so confused in our modern culture. Death was always tragic. The question was whether there could also be beauty and power and healing in that tragedy. And we, on the other side of the dying of death in the 20th and 21st centuries, all we've got left is the tragedy and the fear. And in many cases, we've lost the capacity to find beauty and power and meaning in that process of dying. Now, as you kind of jump into the the beginning of the book after kind of this introductory chapter, you begin to kind of talk about Joseph's culture, Joseph Smith's culture, and, and how it affected his view. Um, and you spent a little bit of time talking about kind of in his younger his younger days, the things he would have seen or experienced in relation to death. Would you mind sharing maybe a little bit of that background with us of what Joseph's uh, culture was like uh, in aspects of, of, the, of death and of those dying? Not at all. And I think it's important that you bring attention to the fact that Joseph Smith is a prophet and indeed all of us arise at particular moments in time embedded in particular communities and cultures and that those are part of the way that God addresses us and makes us into his strong daughters and sons. And I think that was true of Joseph Smith just as it's been true of all the rest of us. The culture that Joseph Smith grew up in was one of deep poverty. They were not a wealthy family. They tended to inhabit uh, society's margins, lived out in frontier New York. It's hard to imagine New York as the frontier now, but that is indeed what it was. And in the life of the frontier poor, you were routinely around death just in the life cycles of an agricultural uh, exist. You would have slaughtered animals as part of your routine growing up. That would have been something as normal uh, to them as going to the local grocery store to get our ultra-fancy, ultra-cheap chicken breasts and those little cellophane wrappers would be for us now. So there's a component of just growing up in an agricultural society that exposes people to non-human death. Simultaneously, though, there's a substantial amount of human death that uh, people encounter. It was extremely rare to make it to age 20 without uh, losing a first-degree relative or, at a minimum, a second-degree relative. And you die from trauma or accidents. You would die from infectious disease epidemic. It was uncommon back then for people to die in an advanced age of cancer or heart failure or strokes. Those those did happen. They, They did happen, but they weren't that common. And another thing that was important to recognize is that my predecessors, the physicians, at this point in human history, 
uh, were useless to dangerous. That's widely acknowledged in the history of medicine that you were uh, as likely to be harmed, if not more likely to be harmed than helped by an encounter with a physician. People didn't know a lot about some of the self-limited diseases. Now, you know, we talk about a flu and we go and we get some sort of uh, chicken soup and we take a day off work and we know that, well, this is just the flu, things will be okay. But back then, when you got the flu, you didn't know. Did you have meningitis? Did you have a necrotizing infection of the mouth? Did you have typhoid fever? It was very common for sick beds to suddenly become deathbeds. There's a sense in which these people were always surrounded by death. And, and I think that the, the omnipresence of death in that culture meant that they, they actually had to solve the problem. They couldn't just pretend that death didn't exist and therefore not confront any of the moral or theological or spiritual or personal questions or crises that death created the way we seem to. They, just, they had to come to terms with it. How they came to terms with it, I think, is very interesting, and that's part of holy dying. And, and in, in large part, that's part of how Joseph Smith tried to make sense of the revelations that he was receiving uh, as he was being called to uh, found the restored church. As I think about subjects like this, it's often neat to kind of take a step back in time and see what I think would be strange or peculiar ways that people in a different time saw things. Is there any conceptions of the dying process in this uh, early 1800s culture that we today would find awkward or peculiar uh, to our senses? Yeah, I, I think we would be surprised to know how many people were there. It, it was an extremely social event. When somebody entered a deathbed, all friends and family, the entire church, people, there are obvious cases and reports of people just wandering through town and being told uh, Goodman Smith is dying, you should go to the deathbed. The social component, I think, was striking. And I think it would be, I think we've done a little bit better job uh, at it in, you know, maybe in the last 30 or 40 years. But I think we'd be struck by what an emphasis there was on seeing the dying as teachers, not just at how sad it is that they're going and it's good for us to remember uh, the limits on our time, but the sense that you would go and you would take notes and it would be like a, a visit from some incredibly famous public speaker nowadays, but it, but at that time it was the dying person. And then I think we would be very um, uncomfortable with their relationship to the physical relics of dying and the dead. Uh, it, it was very common to take lockets of hair from a person uh, who had just died, and then you would make it into a little wreath or other kinds of figures. That was something that was very common to do. Uh, People, I don't think, realize that photography uh, was actually initially uh, developed to allow people to cheaply take post-mortem photographs. Unless you were phenomenally wealthy, the primary reason somebody might commission a painting was uh, an immediate post-mortem painting. And once photography becomes a possibility, uh, it makes the post-mortem portrait suddenly affordable for many people. So I I forget the the specific numbers, but the majority of photographs that are taken in the first 30 years that photography is available are actually of freshly dead people. And, And now I think we would consider it to be indecent, frightful, uh, at the time, they saw it as 
a mark of reverence. It was part of how you you honored uh, the newly dead and attempted to affirm their ongoing role in our lives. But they, you know, they would make canes out of coffins or out of trees that grew over a site of an interment. Um, they would. Uh, when you went to a funeral, commonly you would get um, ring or uh, other pieces of jewelry or clothing that you would then wear. Uh, I think I've seen in my kids uh, going to birthday parties. It seems like there are some birthday parties that give you little trinkets for attending the birthday party. Uh, back then, the trinkets were actually given to you uh, at a funeral, and, and you would wear them as a way of honoring the loss of that person. Interesting. I uh, it, I noticed in the book there was some time spent talking about how those in that culture, perhaps not really understanding when what the dying process exactly was from a medical standpoint and realizing when one was actually deceased and, and or just perhaps really close to it, there was this idea that you write about that death was negotiable. Um, maybe speak about that for a moment, about their ideas of, of being able to kind of bring these people back or or work with them hoping that they will come back from being dead, but when it actually hasn't taken place yet? There's a lot of uncertainty that happens in that period. There are a variety of situations in untreated illness where people could appear to be dead for some time and might even appear to be dead, uh, but not even really terribly close to dead. Uh, If someone was uh, unconscious and not interacting and their breathing was shallow, wasn't so uncommon for people to think they were dead, but there there are a reasonable number of people who awaken from these seemingly deathly comas, and even sometimes reversibly, maybe back for years after appearing to have died at one point. So if you have enough of these experiences, and particularly if you hear enough stories about these experiences, when everybody around was pretty sure they were dead and now they're not dead, you begin to think that there's some room to negotiate with God or maybe some some powers that uh, you might have or others might have to change that uh, the, the course of dying. You mentioned early on uh, your familiarity with what are now called near-death experiences. And in some respects, these older uh, times were uh, their version of, of near-death experiences, these people waking from the comas. There was less about the visions that they had, although there are perfectly typical near-death experiences in the historical record, including Sidney Rigdon's daughter had uh, an experience that that may have actually affected some component of uh, the course of church history. She comes back and reports this vision after appearing to have died. and as a consequence, this already emotionally and spiritually fraught time of transition and fear becomes that much more open to people thinking they have some influence around it. And and there are these phrases in the New Testament that talk about disciples having the capacity to raise the dead. And you can imagine that if there are these periods uh, or, or if there are these experiences where the apparently dead come back to life, that those would be seized on as evidence that the New Testament prophecy is being fulfilled. But simultaneous with the New Testament prophecy and the tradition of spiritual gifts, including raising the dead, you have 
much older, uh, actually, human traditions about the risks of the return from the dead. You know, our stories about vampires and zombies are a part and parcel of that old set of traditions that returning from the dead may be a curse. And there's this fascinating example of Zina Diantha. She's one of the priestesses of early Mormonism, incredibly influential figure that every student of church history should know something about. Her mom, also named Zina, had an experience where she felt she resuscitated a corpse and and she and the corpse were cursed for that resuscitation. It was really a frightening experience for her. So it, there's, there's all this uncertainty that people have and um, these complicated ways they try to make sense of these uncertain encounters that I, that I think are an important topic for historians and I think are an important part of the experience of being human, making sense of these uncertain and emotionally perilous uh, and frightening experiences. Excellent. We're talking today with Samuel Brown, LDS scholar and author, author of the book In Heaven As It Is on Earth, Joseph Smith and the Early Mormon Conquest of Death. You you mentioned earlier, Samuel, you mentioned uh, doctors and how at times, at best, they were kind of a, a wash and at worst they were a detriment to people's health. And, and I want to talk a little bit about some of Joseph's uh, specific experiences and the first one I want to hit on is is the death of his brother Alvin, which I think is a perfect example of, uh, in a sense, medical malpractice. And wondered if you might share briefly what happened there, but also, more importantly, the effect that that death had on Joseph and the rest of the family. Yeah, Alvin Alvin was really the the favorite son of the Smiths, and he was seen as the as the real source of stability. Joseph Senior was a great guy. He was also a little bit of a fragile fella and, and had difficulty making life work the way he wanted it to. And where people had worries about Joseph Sr. periodically, they never had worries about Alvin. There was this clear sense in which he was the source of stability and spiritual authority within the family. You know, Joseph Sr. was a he was a spiritual guy, but I, I think he often disappointed his wife, Lucy Mack Smith, and Alvin sort of stepped in and had that stabilizing uh, presence in the family. And he uh, gets abruptly ill, and uh, I've looked closely at this based on the records that are currently available. Now, he's 23, 24 at the time. It's entirely possible that it was appendicitis. It's also entirely possible that he just had a stomach bug or food poisoning or typhoid fever. There are any number of things that could make him have belly pain and vomiting, uh, which that's about what we know is that he came in and complained of some belly pain and vomiting. So they called the physicians. And back then, my predecessors, these uh, traditional what do we call we call ourselves allopaths that's from an old argument we had with the homeopaths who ironically back then were actually 100% correct and now the tables have turned where the homeopaths were actually the sane ones uh, historically uh, there's been a flip where the allopaths for all of their problems actually do have i think uh a net positive uh, effect on people's health. And the homeopaths have remained neutral, having no uh, particular specific effect on anybody's health, but at least avoiding those early toxicities. So back then, allopaths were actively poisonous. The, the mainstay of treatment was this purgative, something to cause diarrhea, called calomel, which is mercurous chloride. It's sort of the equivalent of breaking open a 20-year-old thermometer when they used to have mercury in them and making the patient drink that. You know, it's ludicrous 
that anyone would ever have uh, been giving mercurous chloride to people causes ulcers in the belly, can cause uh, frank uh, breaking open of the bowels, and in any case can cause mercury intoxication. So they give him calomel. If he had a self-limited, like a stomach bug, then the calomel killed him straight up. If he had appendicitis, well, that makes it more of a possibility that he would have died without it. And then the calomel would just have been an indignity rather than the actual cause of death. But then over three or four days, he, he dies. And he um, enacts the holy deathbed. He gives a, a deathbed commission to Joseph Jr. and uh, wraps up his affairs. And, and they, um, they one of the family members sees an angel come to, to take him home, which was also fairly typical of holy dying and uh, they did an autopsy which was relatively uncommon and Lucy Max Smith remembers the autopsy as showing that the calomel had in fact been the the cause of death and I, I think statistically she she probably was right it's hard to be a hundred percent sure but statistically I think she was probably right the, the family is devastated by the loss of Alvin and there's a sense in which Alvin's death makes absolutely unavoidable and acute for Joseph Smith now growing into prophethood, the problems associated, the theological problems associated with death. And at key moments in the restoration, you see Alvin. You see Alvin either as Joseph Smith sees him in vision, or you see Alvin as Joseph Smith is explicitly working through the problems posed by Alvin's death. Because even though Alvin was a good person and so many of the hopes for the family were pinned on him, he was still not uh, an active churchgoer and had not been appropriately converted into a Protestant fold. And so critics of the Smith family indicated to them that Alvin was in fact in hell. And then there's this horrible sequence of events where uh, a rumor uh, goes abroad that um, the Smith family has, is cursed because they have failed to protect Alvin's remains. And uh, Joseph Sr., and we presume but don't know for sure that Joseph Jr. went with him. There's no reason to doubt that he did go with his father, but there's no specific documentary evidence that he was there. Um, they actually disinterred Alvin uh, to make sure that his remains had not been desecrated. And you can imagine that as well, this notion, not only did they lose him, but then there are accusations from their enemies and critics that they couldn't even protect his remains. And I don't think we understand nowadays how devastating that was, but that to have lost his remains, to have had them stolen and in some way misused, um, was the worst thing that you could say about a family, that they were unable to protect the remains of their loved one. Part of it was that there was a belief that you really did get resurrected precisely where your bones lay, and if your bones were in the wrong place, then um, you wouldn't be resurrected appropriately, or at least you wouldn't be resurrected in the proximity of your family. But there was a much broader social stigma that, I mean, it's almost like hanging somebody up in a gibbet or slandering them after uh, they've died. It, it's just this horrible thing. So, so the sense that the world was out to get them, that there were harsh critics that would that would not hesitate to stoop to the low of pretending to have desecrated a corpse, uh, are also a part of the Smith family experience of Alvin's death. 
That's interesting. I uh, I want to jump now to what I would consider to be somewhat controversial topics uh, that you kind of cover in the book in relationship to death. And, and the first one's treasure digging, and the second is seer stones. And and I don't mean controversial as in uh, you know seer stones. Just talking about them is gonna is gonna cause a lot of conflict. But essentially that that these two issues are so little talked about within. Uh, within our church setting that many members are kind of surprised to hear some of these stories. And so I'm, I want to be careful how I approach these, but most of my listeners are listening to this podcast because they're aware of these things and trying to figure out ways to deal with it. So I do think it's important to cover. You talk about treasure digging, and I remember when I first encountered reading about Joseph Smith and his, his seeking treasure and in all that went into that, I remember reading some stories, which you cover a little bit in the book, which I think come from uh, Philastrus Hurlbut and uh, Eber D. Howe, uh, which is this idea that Joseph and perhaps his dad, perhaps his brothers, are taking animals out and you know, drawing these mystic circles and sacrificing sheep and sacrificing dogs in order to be told by the spirits where these hidden treasures are. And, and I just wondered if maybe kind of off on a side tangent, if you can maybe share what, if the information simply comes from this Mormonism unveiled source where, where Hurlbut is going around to neighbors and trying to dig up as much dirty laundry and negative criticisms of the Smith family as he can, or, or do we have some basis for these, these rumors beyond just what he's coming up with? And then the second question kind of plays into, uh, how does treasure digging, um, play into this topic that you want to cover, which is the death and, and how it affects Joseph Smith? The biggest problem that I encounter as, um, as I talk to people trying to digest the significance of treasure digging in, uh, early Mormon history is the sense in which we're judging uh, the past by the the standards of present. And um, right now, if someone were to engage in typical folk religious practices of the, boy, it goes, I mean, it's it's thousands of years of human history that these things are done, at, at, you know, at least from the time of Christ uh, and almost certainly long before right up in varying places until the middle of the 19th century. If we now, if Bill Reel or Sam Brown were to go out and do these things, we would be considered Satan worshipers. I think that's how most people would would, uh, think of us, or or sociopaths or or some other sort of dangerous figure. And, And it means that we have this sort of discordance between what we think it would look like to be uh engaging in any of these old traditional practices now with the fact that in context, these would not have been so incredibly strange. And we forget that if somebody from the 19th century were suddenly uh, to appear, we would have a devil of a time understanding their speech. Even though they speak the same language and the printed language is very easy to understand, there would be huge accent differences. It would be like ending up in uh, the remotest corner of Appalachia and trying to work through the accent there. And so just something as trivial as the language they spoke would also be very disconcerting and confusing, a reminder that you've got to go back to context. So what's the context? The context is that there were longstanding beliefs that um, there were relics of the past that were in the ground. That's not that controversial, right? They just on the on the news I saw that some undergraduates had found an Iron Age 
chariot somewhere in the English countryside. So it's clearly true that there are relics of past civilizations that are present in the ground. What's no longer true is the belief that those ancient cultures still had concern about or ownership of those relics. Nowadays, we find a relic in the ground and we think, how cool is that? I wonder whether it's worth anything. I wonder if a museum wants it. Back then, those artifacts or relics still belonged to the people to whom they belonged when those people were still alive. And in a culture that believed that those people could still somehow be influential in the world around them, there's a certain crisis. Because it's not just finding something, it's stealing something. If the dead still own the artifacts that you've uncovered in the ground, you're stealing from them. Well, that seems like sort of a crisis. You ought not to do something that rude to past generations. So how do you negotiate and or navigate this tension? You're hoping that you will find some wonderful marvel, just like people who use those metal detectors do now. Simultaneously, you're worried that you're stealing it from uh, an individual that's passed now into the spirit realm or is a ghost or maybe even in a malevolent sense is a, is a, a, a demon. That's a complicated word, but I think demon's fair uh, for our present conversation. So you've got that tradition. How do you appease the dead? How do you make it not stealing, but actually a gift? And a lot of the folk religion or the folk practice that's associated with the treasure hunt that now looks to us like a bunch of ignorant maniacs was about trying to trouble through that relationship to those prior generations. Simultaneously, you have traditions about agricultural cycle. And those are very ancient. I mean, the some of the earliest archaeology that we have probably is compatible with this notion that agricultural cycles are associated with a human relationship to superhuman beings, specifically the gods, and to previously human beings, you know, those who have died before. And those agricultural cycles are cycles of the harvest. We're accustomed now to the harvest in terms of the farmer's markets, and you get your beets and your potatoes and your onions and your tomatoes, and that's wonderful. But agricultural harvest historically was also a story about the harvesting of animals, the slaughter of animals. And uh, meat, very important to human beings over the course of their history. I'm aware of the complex relationships between vegetarians and omnivores now, but the reality is that over the course of human history, becoming omnivorous was, uh, seems to have been a crucial component of the differentiation of humans from uh, other close relatives on the evolutionary tree and, and meets this wonderful thing, right? It's It's got everything we need. It's flavorful. It's filling. And it's a little hard to come by. So it's honored as a treasure. And in the ancient Near East and in other cultures that we're aware of, there was a sense in which the harvest of an animal would be associated in some way with an attempt to either make peace with or even to have a meal with a god or some other superhuman being. So the animal sacrifice that we see in the Hebrew Bible, that it, there's uh, Jonathan Z. Smith or Jay Z. Smith, who's you know, the top religion theorist currently uh, writing, certain this beautiful essay about animal sacrifice, Hebrew Bible and others, as inviting God to share a meal with you. Now, we who are not exposed to the slaughter of animals almost ever find that highly disconcerting and, and morally destabilizing. We can't imagine killing a goat or a sheep or a chicken. Um, but the reality is that's how you harvested that food. 
and that food was something you shared with the god or that you offered to the god in the hopes that god would take care of you or bless you. Well, you can imagine that those same basic ideas, harvesting an animal's life and sharing it with a superhuman being, would make sense in a negotiation with the owners of the relics or artifacts that somebody who was looking for treasure might um, need to connect with or communicate with. So that's the context for well-documented cases of quote-unquote animal sacrifice as a part of the treasure hunt. Now, as far as Joseph Smith personally engaging in those traditions, I think it's okay to take a deep breath here and say there's not entirely reliable documentary evidence that that happened, but there's no particular reason to believe that that would not have happened. Harvesting an animal was a natural, normal thing that people did all the time in those societies. Normally, it was done just as part of the cycle of life, and you've got to eat or you've got to sell the meat. That's just what people do. In certain circumstances, that practice was used in a way that bore the echoes of more ancient culture and a more ancient culture that was clearly present in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, nowadays, we think it's very strange. At the time, it would have been seen as a mark of poverty and of superstition, but it would... But, I mean, it's complicated. There's always somebody who would call what poor people did in the hopes of getting more money satanic or... Uh, heretical or dangerous to good morals. But there's also the fact that there would have been plenty of their peers who would not have been at all surprised to hear that the slaughter of a sheep was actually what allowed them, somebody, to find some buried artifact or relic from the past. So the reality is, if you're if you're going to be fastidious about it, uh, you could dismiss the documentary evidence uh, about this notion of quote-unquote animal sacrifice for uh, the, the pursuit of uh, artifacts, uh, buried artifacts, um, because it's, you know, this is such a classic trope. If you call somebody a treasure seeker, if you call them a treasure, a money digger, then you're going to associate them with all of the various practices that over the centuries and, in fact, millennia have been associated with it, whether you have real evidence to support it or not. So I think it, you could dismiss those uh, affidavits as not reliable. There's no independent corroborated uh, evidence to speak of for that. And, and I think that's fine to do. If, if that makes sense to you as a practicing Latter-day Saint, I think that's fine. I think you're on reasonably secure grounds. Uh, for me personally, that's not a great solution because it's a way of just avoiding the fact that we have to make our peace with prior generations and with the fact that the prior generations were very different from we, from the way we are and saw the world in different ways and still God spoke to them. And, and that's why I think a, a healthier notion is to say there are contexts and in those relevant contexts, this behavior could have been fitting with a particular kind of person, a poor person, limited in economic possibilities, open to the possibility that there was something other than the mighty market that could uh, determine human lives and could bless them, who could thereby have participated in activities that we now think are completely bonkers without actually being bonkers, just being different and more ancient. And in some respects, this relationship that we're trying to sort out with the generations that have come before us has parallels to the ways that they were trying to make sense of the relationships that they bore to the people who had come before them. 
Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And that's kind of a connection, I think, that'll be important to listeners who, who perhaps have heard these stories and are struggling with them. You know, on one, on one hand, the very first time I remember hearing, uh, some of Joseph's neighbors reporting that Father Smith had, had slit the throat of a sheep or had, you know, killed a, a black dog at, around some kind of mystic circle. All of a sudden, you know, I'm reading this for the first time and I'm thinking, this is crazy. This is nuts. I'm out of here. And, and all of a sudden I'm struggling with my faith. But in reality, if we go back to the culture of that time, as you're suggesting, that even if we make the connection that this did happen, which, which again, one, as you're pointing out, one could go either way and say, look, the evidence really isn't, you know, isn't really strong enough. If you want to simply just discard it, you can. But if you do want to deal with it face to face, it certainly makes sense in that culture that, that Joseph and his family are using these sacrifices to appease whatever these spirits are that they believe exist, whether they do or not, they believe they do. And for them, it's a very real thing. And as they're trying to appease them so that they can get access to these, these relics without having to, to worry about offending, uh, these deceased individuals. I just think that's a beautiful connection. And I think it's one that will allow a lot of people who struggle with this point uh, within the his- historical analysis to kind of just softly move on and say, okay, I can, I can handle it in that way and it works and it seems to make a lot of sense. So I really appreciate that. It's like complaining that he's too ancient, right? We're, we're, right. we're bothered that Joseph Smith is, looks so ancient that he might even fit into the Hebrew Bible. But on the other hand, we love how ancient he is because he's restoring all these things from Hebrew Bible. But remember, Hebrew Bible has animal sacrifice. Right? It's a part of the, the, it's, it's a part of the warp and woof of, of those ancient societies. And there's this persistent sense in which Joseph Smith is more ancient than we realize in sensibilities and outlook and experience. And God is using him as this ancient-minded individual to be the conduit through which these ancient truths are recovered. Yeah, and and I just think that sometimes we're you know we're here in 2014 and we think to ourselves that 1830s not that long ago, but in some ways it's a giant giant distance when we talk about cultural norms and the way in which we see science and the way in which we see uh, issues of medicine. It's just leaps and bounds. It's a difference, even if the time gap is not that big. I think we get fooled because the written documents are all written in English and we understand it. And because of that, we imagine that they must be just like us, just a little bit poorer. But you're right. Their their worldview is so different from ours, just like the worldview of the scriptural peoples was very different from ours. It, it's just it's hard to us because we've heard of Andrew Jackson, right? We, we've heard about in general history books all these figures that were living 20 or 50 years before Joseph Smith and 50 years after. And it's hard for us to imagine just how radically different they were from us. And death culture is one of the ways that they are, they, people in the 1830s, are more like people in 1200 than they are like us in terms of the death culture. And, it, and, right. and so many other aspects of the culture are radically different. And, and I think we're just, we're not accustomed to the fact that if, if what we said was that um, Joseph Smith harvested turnips and offered them in propitiation or something like that. We'd be like, oh, okay, fair enough. But in those agricultural societies, these were the life cycles. You harvest things. You harvest vegetables and you harvest animals. It's a part of that cycle. And I think we've, 
I think we've gotten desperately confused about um, about those similarities and differences between our culture and theirs. Yeah, yeah. You know, I even think sometimes we sit and watch church videos. Uh, the the restoration when the church came out with just a, a few years ago, where it essentially tells the early story of the first vision and Joseph's interaction with the ministers. And I remember almost to a T every time I watch that video, I think to myself that. If we were to actually be there when that's happening, just as you pointed out earlier, the accents in Appalachia, I don't know that we would really understand all the conversation that was going on if if the accents in the videos were the same as what uh, the people of that day used. Um, I, I want to kind of use our last few minutes here. In the book, you talk about seer stones. Uh, in the second part of the book, you talk about some of the doctrines that come forth with sealing, uh, plural marriage. Uh, adoption, um, some of the, you know, in a sense, new names, which which relates in a sense to to our temple worship, but also is connected to the scriptures in the Book of Revelation. And I want to I want to kind of just leave the listeners knowing that there's just a whole bunch of stuff in this book that we didn't have time to kind of talk about or hit at, and and hope that people will will you know take time to to get the book and read it and look into it. It's just absolutely like I said from the very beginning. It's just a fascinating book. But I want to talk for just a moment. Uh, about some other things that you're involved in, I know that there is a, a project coming out, an, an article coming out that you've been working on uh, titled First Principles and Ordinances, the Fourth Article of Faith in Light of the Temple, and wanted to give you a minute or two just to talk about that, and, and then we'll wrap up kind of asking you where people can find your book and, uh, and, and kind of finish off. Thanks, Bill. When I published in Heaven, I got some feedback that uh, it was an academic book, which it was intended to be. It's a, it's a regular academic history book uh, that's meant to contribute to history, but I, but I wanted it to be interesting to Latter-day Saints. And I got some feedback, some curious feedback, that people had no idea whether I was a Latter-day Saint, and it was sort of disconcerting to them uh, that you could write this whole book that that took this sort of middle ground, a, a sympathetic outsider kind of approach to it uh, and, and still be uh, a practicing Latter-day Saint. And I, and I realized that, there, that in academic writing, there's a kind of cowardice uh, in that you can just write what the academic in you tells you to write. And you don't have to take a stand in whether you think something is deeply true. You just describe what you see in the documentary evidence. And the combination of that, that uh, plus the insights that I gained through taking this academic approach in the In Heaven book made me realize how much of what Joseph Smith is restoring is actually this wonderfully rich set of doctrines and ordinances that are designed to create this eternal integrated family of all humanity brought together in the sacred and tender intimacy of parent and child bonds as exemplified by the relationship between God and Christ and between Christ and all of us. It, it made me think that the non-cowardly thing to do would be to write a book that would be non-academic, it would be religious devotional, directed to fellow Latter-day Saints, that made me actually commit in writing to my personal religious beliefs. And the First Principles and Ordinances is a book coming out from Maxwell Institute in just a week, uh, I think, maybe, maybe two weeks, that uh, tries to do that, tries to write in non-academic terms, accessibly, 
to fellow Latter-day Saints about the religious and theological insights that I gained from writing uh, the In Heaven book. And it's part of the Living Faith series. Adam Miller's Letters to a Young Mormon was the first in the series, and my First Principles and Ordinances will be the second. And the idea behind this Living Faith series is to have practicing academics, uh, Adam's a philosopher, I'm a biomedical researcher, um, write about their faith in real ways. To, and I think in part to say, look, the silly notion that we see in the press that scientists can't be religious and religious people can't be scientific is a totally false dichotomy that it really gets both religion and science wrong. So that's what this uh, First Principles and Ordinances uh, book is uh, out in the next couple of weeks. And, and in heaven is in heaven's going to give you the careful history, the academic rigor, a lot more depth and detail. And First Principles and Ordinances, uh, I hope, is going to be something that you can read and use as you're writing a gospel doctrine or a Relief Society lesson that you can use as you're trying to puzzle through some of the questions that come up about what's distinctive and important about uh, the gospel and how to continue to be a committed Latter-day Saint in the face of these occasional tensions between the different worldviews that we inhabit as a modern individual. Uh, Samuel Brown, author of In Heaven As It Is on Earth, Joseph Smith and the Early Mormon Conquest of Death. Uh, Sam, where can people find the book at? Uh, in Heaven, it published by Oxford University Press. Uh, you can get it off Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And if you live in Utah, you can get it from Benchmark Books. They uh, keep it continuously in stock. And any, any uh, Deseret book can order it for you. It's, it's just a standard, regular uh, book published by Oxford. Wonderful. We'll uh, we'll put a couple links up for places that the listeners can find the book. I want to finish off with uh, with one thought, and then uh, I want to ask a question. And the thought was something we didn't have time to get to, but I just want to let the listeners know one other fascinating thing in the book. It's something I learned that was completely new to me, which was that there was this Nauvoo tomb. At least it was in the, in the works and, and being prepared for for Joseph and uh, and I'm I'm thinking his family to be buried in. And uh, and I want to leave that kind of as a, as a maybe a an intriguing part for people to kind of think about. I know you had some illustrations in there and, and just found that to be a very fascinating section of your book. And, and, you know, I'm always trying to learn something new and in, in regards to that, just Joseph's, uh, the tomb in Nauvoo, as well as information there on the treasure digging were things that I picked up that were brand new to me. And so I just want to thank you for that. No, no problem. The, uh, the final question, of course, my listeners are made up of people who are struggling with, with doubts. They've, they've got questions. They've encountered a, a, either a, a hard faith transition or perhaps we could even call it a faith crisis. And they're trying to find ways to lead with faith. And, and I know you've done, done work on the book of Abraham. I know you're very familiar with the difficult issues in church history. And I found it intriguing as we started our interview that you said that for the majority of your your early years in the church, you were an atheist. I just wondered, maybe just from your perspective, what maybe you would share with, with those listening who are having a hard time with church history, who are struggling, and uh, and maybe what you have to offer from your perspective. That is a good and hard question. I hope I answer a fair bit of it in this First Principles book, where I lay it out and I talk about my movement from atheism to theism and Mormonism. I, I think the take-home is... Take a deep breath, take a deep breath, recognize that the body of Christ is diverse and that the body of Christ therefore contains you and people like you and people very unlike you. 
Some of the people, unlike you, will be really hard to get along with and will leave you feeling like there's no way for you to belong. But the metaphor that Paul uses of the body of Christ, I think, is absolutely apt. And it's a big place. There's, I mean, I, I've been struck since age of 18. I've been a practicing committed Latter-day Saint. I am... Uh, I do not fit usual molds. I am not a Victorian gentleman. I don't, I'm not a member of the Tea Party, although I do have friends who are a part of the Tea Party and I try to be very sympathetic and listening. But I'm, I'm an intellectual, skeptic, academic who reads widely all across the spectrum and has tended to uh, be uh, out on the left. And people often say to me, how could you possibly fit in the church. And it, the question doesn't doesn't make sense to me because of course I fit the church. It's the body of Christ. And and I am hungry for the presence of Christ and love the spirit of God that I see animating all these good people all across the different spectrums, all across that body of Christ. And when I when I found God 20 25 years ago, I I felt God so strongly call me to be a Latter-day Saint and I've realized as you as you take a deep breath and you keep at it and you look for the things that are beautiful and powerful and bring God's presence into your life you find a way to imagine a body of Christ that includes you and I think it's it's being aware that the people that make you feel unwelcome are not the whole body of Christ and and as tough as it is to imagine it, they belong in the body of Christ just as much as you do. That's the point of this rich and diverse and interconnected group of people. So I, It's hard. You're going to be misunderstood as you try to deal with this, and there are going to be other members of the church that leave you struggling to imagine how you could fit in. Uh, but the truth is that you do. You do fit in, recognizing that the body of Christ has all of these interconnected but very distinct components. The spleen does not look at all like the thumb, but they are both absolutely essential in this metaphor of the body of Christ. So that's the right. But I, I hear the pain. I've seen the pain, um, and it's tough. It's tough to feel pulled in these different directions. Uh, but I'm, 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 I'm unpersuaded that the usual. Um, that the usual uh, look at these weird facts about church history or um, look at this uncomfortable political division within the body of Christ, this will tell you how to solve your problem of religious identity. I just don't see that. Religious identity is so much more than isolated arguments about particular historical documents or particular strange happenings that are not well understood for Pat. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a wonderful kind of end note to finish on you pointing to this idea of the body of Christ. And if I remember the scripture correctly, you know, the hands so say to the foot, I have no need of thee. And and so we should expect to have some of those conflicting feelings of frustration and yet and yet as the scripture also points out, all are needed. And uh, and I just appreciate you you sharing that and I thought that was a very thoughtful response and and just appreciate uh, the personality which with you bring to these kinds of subjects, whether it is the book of Abraham or, or talking about treasure hunting in a, in a book about death and, and things going on in Joseph's culture and how he's affected. And so Samuel Brown, I just want to say thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, again, we're talking with Samuel Brown, author of In Heaven, As It Is on Earth, Joseph Smith and the Early Mormon Conquest of Death. Uh, Brother Brown, thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Bill. 
healed the leper and who brought the dead to life. He's the one who fed the hungry and who gave the blind their sight. He's the one who walked on water, then he brought them safe to shore. Let him in, and he will take away your pain. When you feel his love, you'll never be the same. Come on to Christ, come on to him. And by his grace be made holy again. Grace.